This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. President Trump has just visited California to inspect sample walls expected to slow the migration of illegal immigrants from across the border. In Washington, Congress is trying to find a compromise that will legalize undocumented workers. Democrats are battling the president every step of the way because they can't find how to resolve all these issues. Meanwhile, in California, we see bilingual education coming back, a policy that had pretty much gone the way of the buggy whip with the passage of No Child Left Behind back in 2002, which required student testing in the English language. To discuss these topics and more, I have David Leal, professor of political science at the University of Texas in Austin. He's an authority on Hispanic political life, and it's really wonderful to have him with me here on the Education Exchange. David, thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me here. This is my first podcast, I think. So I'm very excited to be talking here. Well, thank you very much for for joining me. Now, before we get to education, let me ask you the big political question, David. Are immigrants turning the United States blue? Is Trump leading Republicans in the last ditch but hopeless effort of white America to hang on to power? Well, there's certainly lots of prognostications about whether or not uh, immigrants are going to turn America blue. Uh, it's harder to be a little bit sure than it is to prognosticate. So I would say that how this all plays out will be subject to a fair amount of short-term and long-term kind of qualifications. So, for example, uh, if you look at the, uh, the the immigrants of the past who have been uh, either come to the country or have been legalized through uh, programs like IRCA, you have to ask yourself, well, how fast do immigrants become citizens? And then you might also ask uh, how many of them vote in elections? register to vote and then vote. And you might also ask, where are they located? Many immigrants are in red and blue states where they're not predominantly affecting election outcomes very much. But if immigrants were to move to more purple states, then you might find them to have a greater influence. In general, uh, immigrant and minority influence is sometimes contingent. So it's contingent upon how non-immigrants or non-minorities vote. So if non-minorities are are really closely divided, then maybe minority groups like Latinos or immigrants might have a chance to move an election outcome. But there's a lot of contingency going on here and a lot of qualifications to this kind of story about how immigrants and minority population growth and demographic change more generally is going to play out in politics. Well, so, but certainly if you keep hammering away on this issue, don't you sort of drive the Hispanic voter to the opposite party? Well, certainly there can be self-fulfilling prophecies here. If you're an immigrant and you perceive that one party loves you and one party hates you, then that could sort of swing your vote in certain ways. And a lot of immigrants who become voters, they may stick with that party for a long time. We know about political partisanship in, in, the, in the academic literature, that once people develop a political party, they're often going to stick with it for a long time. We have an awful lot of new voters coming into the electorate right now, either young people turning 18 or... Uh, immigrants voting for the first time. And so the kind of partisan identities that they develop early on may stick with them for the rest of their life. So when it comes to education, uh, Hispanic Americans uh, in our Education X poll uh, gave American schools a pretty high grade on average. Um, Meanwhile, African Americans gave their local schools a much more they didn't give them quite as good a grade. Definitely not. So why do you think that is the case? Why are Hispanic Americans 
pleased with the American school and black Americans who've been around for a long time in this country are not. Well, the one thing that strikes me looking at the latest Ednex poll is just how few uh, racial ethnic group differences there are on many policy issues. So certainly pundits like to talk about group differences. It helps to sell stories or get clicks. And we hear a lot about the disunited states of America. But Sometimes there's a, a politics of similarity. And when we look at some of these education policy issues, I'm struck by how uh, Latino and white and sometimes African-American opinion are actually fairly similar. Or maybe the differences between their views are very minor and are probably just kind of, you know, polling, polling rounding uh, inefficiency and all that rather than actual sort of, you know, meaningful differences if they're just maybe a few percentage points. So I'm looking at, for example, grading your local schools. You know, uh, in your community, I don't see any real meaningful white or Hispanic differences. As you mentioned, African-Americans are, are slightly less positive about their local schools than Latinos and whites are. And when you look at the nation as a whole, you see grades are much lower across all groups. So people seem to have this idea across race and ethnicity that America's public schools are not doing as well in general. But when you ask them about the schools they know best, presumably, they're much more positive about that. And you can also see a lack of racial ethnic differences when it comes to uh, annual testing. There is a fairly robust support uh, among uh, Hispanics, African-Americans, and whites. Also true for college aspiration. Pretty much everybody wants their children to go to college, either four-year or two-year. It's also true about grading teachers. You find few racial ethnic differences. The majority say that uh, the teachers are excellent or good. It's also true for uh, charter schools. You don't see a lot of differences there. Common core and vouchers, it really depends a little bit on the kind of wording that you use because these questions are susceptible to different kinds of framing effects. But even so, like on common core, uh, without the label of common core, white and Hispanic support is about the same. And for vouchers, uh, the initial question on vouchers in this survey, which you can see online in the really nice interactive graphic, you see white and Hispanic support is about the same, about 50%. Yeah, no, it is amazing that how, how much Americans can agree on so many issues. But there is bilingual education. Now, ordinarily, I would say, you know, I'm going to see overwhelming Hispanic support for bilingual education and, and not uh, much support in the white community for that. But I, I don't think that's what we found. Remind me, what, what did we find? Yeah, uh, I don't have that. I don't see that in, the, uh, in this recent questionnaire. It may be in there. I just may not have seen it. But in general, what we, what we think we know about bilingual educational is that Hispanic views of bilingual uh, education are, are complex. And in part, this because it depends on question wording. If you ask Latinos, do you want your children to be taught entirely in English or entirely in Spanish, then they're not very excited about really, I think, either option. What what Latinos seem to want in surveys is a little bit of a middle ground where they would prefer English, but also Spanish too. What's clear in the data about bilingual education attitudes are the Latinos completely understand that mastering English is essential to getting the American dream. There's no doubt about that. So Latinos very much want to uh, acculturate into the United States. Immigrants very much want to get some of that American dream. They understand that that language is absolutely uh, crucial to that. When you ask about bilingual education in these sort of open-ended surveys that say, tell me what issues are important to you, bilingual education always ranks really low down the policy agenda. In general, the Latino policy agenda is very similar to that of everybody else. You might have jobs, the economy, uh, war, uh, war on terror, things like that. You have a lot of the same kind of issues that people care about. They may have different 
policy answers to those questions with African-Americans being more liberal than whites in most policy areas and Latinos being a little bit in between uh, to some degree, African-Americans and whites. But everybody's clear, all Latinos seem to be pretty clear about the importance of English. And when you look at the data about what languages do you speak across the generations, so second generation to third generation, what you really see is a pretty dramatic Spanish language loss. There are almost no monolingual Spanish speakers in the second and third generation. Everybody says they're either monolingual English or they're bilingual, and how bilingual they are, we don't really know. So in California, a few years back, there was a uh, referendum where the voters uh, said no more bilingual education. And this was sort of supported by the Republicans, opposed by the Democrats. The, the voters actually voted to throw bilingual education out the door. That was back in the 90s. And then the Republicans just sort of lost all their political base in, in California. Uh, so how does that square with what you just said about uh, bilingual education? Oh, about the 1990s kinds of blue wave, this earlier blue wave where all, everyone's talking about blue waves right now, but going back to California in the 1990s? Yes. I feel like it's a complicated story. So the, the basic story is always that the Republican Party angered the Latinos with these ballot initiatives and that Latinos turned out in these huge numbers and they brought the Democrats back into power. Because if you go back to the 1990s, you had George Duke Mason was governor, and then Pete Wilson. You had the Republicans who were at or approaching parity in the state legislature. So it was certainly not the kind of blue state that we think of it as now. But I think that the research, the political science research that's come back, come later, has found that maybe some of these changes, these political changes, were concentrated among either uh, Latino foreign-born or Latino non-citizens. And yes, that kind of plays into politics over time as those people become citizens and register to vote and vote. But it didn't seem to be that your native-born citizen Latinos were necessarily motivated by those changes to go vote Democratic. And you also have a variety of other things that were going on, too, like uh, after the Cold War and the drawdown of the U.S. military, you had a lot of the defense industry plants in Southern California close. You had uh, perhaps people, it seems, were, were leaving the state of California. So you may have had not just maybe some Latinos, mostly foreign-born and uh, perhaps non-citizens, becoming more democratic, but you also may have had an outflow of Republicans from places like Orange County because of this. So it's a little hard to to trace exactly what's happening at one state because there are really multiple things that were going on at the same time. So now uh, bilingual education has been reintroduced into uh, California at the, at the, uh, but a parent has to uh, request it. It isn't, it isn't automatic. You, you, a child isn't automatic. A parent has to request it. So do you think a lot of parents are going to pick up on that and require, ask that their child be educated in uh, their native tongue? I, I really wouldn't want to predict. I just don't know about that. But I know that some of the research on Latino parents suggests that it's a complicated thing because because Latino parents want their children to do well in English, the question arises, will bilingual education help or hurt? And my sense is that there are a variety of perspectives out there. People may have a, a sentimental regard for Spanish. You want to keep the culture going. A lot of people didn't leave their home countries because they actively disliked them. They moved for the opportunities in America, and so they still have a sentimental regard for Mexico and many other countries in Latin America. And children learning Spanish helps to keep some cultural continuity, even if you want to acculturate into the United States. And it also may help you communicate, the children communicate with the grandparents in the home country and, and that. But at the same time, parents are also worried about, well, 
you know, what is the effect of this going to be on their English language abilities? Because, as I said before, Latino parents seem pretty clear that they want their children to learn English and as well as they can in order to be the most successful. So they're worried about that, it seems, from surveys. So I don't really know how this is all going to play out with choice. Anytime you design a program that requires people to opt in, though, that's sort of an extra step. And so you might have less of that just because the program does require you to do something else. Right. So... Now, an immigrant population, historically speaking, has been thought to be risk-taking, entrepreneurial, energetic. Does this apply today in the world uh, where we have a safety net out there and you come into the United States, all of a sudden you're eligible for a set of benefits that you have never had in the home country? Um, is immigration today different from immigration in the past, or is it pretty much like in the past? I think you see a lot of similarities over time. I think that the, the kind of people who come to the United States are not the average person in a country. What you sometimes find is that immigrants are not the so-called poorest of the poor, as people sometimes think. Immigrants are often the people whose aspirations don't match their opportunities. So they really want to be ambitious, successful. They want their children and grandchildren to have better lives than they did. But they look around and they don't see the opportunities there. And so they decide that they're going to migrate. And that's generally true of migration. It also costs money to migrate, too. It's not completely cheap just to go from point A to point B. And then you have to live in the new country and you know, develop connections and find a job. And so you often find people who come with some, uh, certainly with some, sometimes with some resources in some ways, but you also find people who just have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and they're risk takers, like you said. And I think that's always been true. And there's, that's one of the arguments in general about how American political culture continues is that it was uh, self-selected people were coming to the United States who were more interested in, in what we might call capital L liberal values, like classical liberalism, not liberal as it's used today, but people who are interested in freedom and opportunity and the chance to get ahead and improve their lives and improve their children's lives. And so I think we're still seeing a lot of that. And there's always the argument that immigrants today are different in some kind of way, but the research on this shows that when you compare let's say, for example, the, the Mexican-American experience to the Italian-American experience, you find a lot of similarities over time. So there's been research showing that you know, there's a lot of continuity, in fact, in, in migrants uh, over very long time periods in the United States. I think that's good news for the United States. And also, as you mentioned, there are, we think of certain government programs that immigrants are supposedly coming to try to get, but I don't think that most immigrants are really qualifying for those. Certainly unauthorized immigrants qualify for very little in terms of you know, federal programs or what we think of as quote-unquote welfare programs. So immigrants are really making their way in the economy and they're not having a lot of uh, government support unless you include things like public education for their children, which is available regardless of citizenship status, or maybe emergency medical room care, but not the kind of programs that we think of as as, as welfare programs. But maybe that's one reason why Hispanics like the schools as much as they do. That's the one public service that's available to the Hispanic community, and that's the way their kids are going to get ahead. They're, they're going to learn English. They're going to learn it in school. Maybe it's really critical, that institution, for the immigrant experience. There's the idea that immigrants sometimes compare American institutions to what they know from back home, and you know, on those uh, metrics, a lot, a lot of things in America look really good. So maybe they're more positive because of that. 
Latinos and especially Latino immigrants are also very positive and optimistic about government. Now, this declines over time. So the second generation, the third generation, they become a more negative, more cynical about politics. But in some ways, this is really just another sign of Latino acculturation. It's a Latino acculturation success story, an immigrant success story, because they're becoming more like us, cynical and negative and questioning about things. But when they come, they're very positive. And I think some of that uh, positiveness uh, translates into their evaluations of the local public schools. Well, David, you've been teaching in Texas for a long period of time, and uh, I'm out here in California a lot. So let me ask you a question about the... We've been talking about the immigrant experience without distinguishing where they come from and where they go. We've been generalizing a lot here. But uh, how about the differences between the migration into Texas and the migration into California and the context into which they migrated? Do you see a lot of differences between these two big states, which are really housing the great share of the Mexican-American community? I I have a couple answers. I did a study once that compared uh, Cuban-Americans in Florida and New Jersey and then compared Mexican-Americans in California and Texas. I found that the Cuban-Americans in New Jersey were more democratic and were politically distinct from the Cubans in Florida, whereas Mexican-Americans in California or Texas didn't really... Uh, see, see any differences in their political attitudes. In general, you will hear people say, and I think there is some evidence for this, that uh, Mexican-Americans at Latinos in Texas are more conservative than Mexican-Americans in California. And I've heard various explanations for why that might be the case. I haven't studied it beyond my one project that I mentioned, so I don't know that it's true. But if it was true, there are arguments about how immigrants in, from Mexico come from different places, so there's the argument that uh, immigrants from Mexico have often come more from the northern states, more sort of traditional, more Catholic, and that immigrants from California come from the more kind of central Mexican mountain states, which have a more radical political tradition. And maybe this plays out into their politics once they're in the United States. I think the evidence for this is, is unclear because I haven't really looked into it a lot. But you, but you will hear these kinds of uh, arguments made. Well, David, it's been great having you on the Education Exchange. Uh, the Hispanic experience is going to be increasingly important in American political life, and it's uh, wonderful having an authority uh, with me uh, to discuss this. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I've been speaking with David Leal, Professor of Political Science at the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. This is Paul Peterson on the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.